Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of vice. It's Monday, April 22nd. I'm Sophie Casas. Today, we're going inside New York City's street vendors' fight to survive. Lola is an Ecuadorian woman who sells espumillas, which are marshmallow-like meringues that she piles onto ice cream cones in pink and white swirls. But while street vendor permits through the city only cost $200, Lola paid $6,600 for a six-month summer vending permit. She's renting her permit on the black market, which has crept up because the city only offers 4,000 permits annually, and the wait list is extremely long. So in order to avoid a paper trail, Lola says that the permit owner she's renting from demanded that she make the payment in two cash installments. So far, she feels fortunate that no one has taken her money and disappeared. But she's seen it happen to friends of hers. And the thing is, Lola's story is not unique. Street vendors in New York are up against a lot. So now, council member Margaret Chin has proposed new legislation that would attempt to increase the number of permits available and better support street vendors. So on this episode, I sat down with reporter Diana Hubble to learn more. Hi, Diana. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So you wrote about street vendors in New York City. Let's start with how many street vendor permits are given out every year in New York. And in comparison, how many vendors are there actually? So the number of permits in New York total was actually capped in 1983, and it hasn't really changed since then. So there's around 3,000 two-year permits, and then there's another 1,000 seasonal permits, so 4,000 altogether. And the going rate for one of those permits legally through the city is about $200. Gotcha. So... In your story, you explain that a lot of people want these vendor permits, but because there's only 4,000 given out, a black market has kind of grown around buying permits, which in turn has resulted in people paying exorbitant fees for something that, you know, through the legal channel would cost $200 and then people are buying permits for thousands and thousands of dollars. Can you talk a little bit about how much people are actually paying and some of the stories you heard around this? Well, part of the problem is that almost none of the permits are just circulating. They actually closed the waiting list entirely in, I want to say, 2007. And at the time, there were around 2,500 people on that waiting list. So what happens is a lot of the permits are in the hands of former vendors, some of whom may not even live in this country anymore, 
but they come back to renew that vending permit so that they can rent them out to other people. So I spent the last couple days in Jackson Heights, Queens, and the rates you hear vary. Um, I heard pretty consistently around 6000 for a summer seasonal permit, but one guy said that he'd just paid ten. He said it was worse this year. I heard as low as 15000 for a two-year permit, and that particular vendor w- had only gotten this good rate because he offered to pay more in two years if he was successful and he made more mm-hmm. money. Some of the rates were more like twenty, twenty-five thousand. That's a lot of money. I'm curious, as I was reading your story and hearing some of the numbers and sort of how high it sometimes got, I was wondering, like, do these vendors end up actually turning a profit if they're paying $25,000? One person you talked about just to kind of start his vendor business. So not just buying the permit, but sort of everything around that. He had to raise $50,000. So are these people still is it still worth it for them i mean it seems to be and i don't think no one is really getting rich doing this as as one of the activists that i spoke with said you know you don't see vendors buying townhouses in the village and driving mercedes Mm, right but it is if you're successful and you have a good product you can make a decent living i think what is problematic about it is that you know, if you're sort of one of the more high-end vendors like you would see at Smorgasbord in Brooklyn, you can afford this and you can afford nice branding, you can afford nice facilities, you can afford good quality food. Whereas if you're from some of the more marginalized populations that I was talking to, you don't really have much left to invest in your business and maybe make it better. So the guy who spent 50000 he was lucky in that he'd been saving up for years to do this. And he already has a somewhat successful business background. He's worked as the head of a Subway franchise, um, which I think was difficult, but he's had the opportunity to save up enough money to invest in the business and make it really nice. Whereas you have, I saw plenty of people selling out of Home Depot shopping carts. Right. So let's talk about that guy just for a second, just to understand the story behind it. So what was his motivation for starting his business and kind of what were the decisions that went into that for him? He is originally from Bangladesh and he's worked in a couple of different professions. He's not, you know, this isn't an act of desperation for him. He has some savings and useful job skills. He's an entrepreneur. He has a nine month old baby and of wife. And he sees this as a way to start his own business and really get ahead and make something. Yeah. Talk about sort of the range of stories you heard. You were in Jackson Heights and you talked to a lot of different vendors. That was one story that you heard. Were there other stories that felt very different or did a lot of the stories sound kind of similar? There was pretty considerable variation even within Jackson Heights. You have people coming from all over the place. I talked to Tibetans, Bangladeshis, Mexicans, some Colombians, a lot of Ecuadorians, really just all over the place. And you have more successful vendors sometimes employ other people to run their trucks. So sometimes they'll, you know, build up sort of a small fleet of four trucks. And then you have 
again, people selling grilled corn out of shopping carts who are sort of really living on the edge. Uh, I met people with families. I met people totally by themselves with nothing else going on. It It's all over the map. Yeah. So how much money are vendors in New York City putting into the economy? You wrote about this in your piece, and the number was pretty big. Well, the number that I cited was from a study in 2015, but it was $293 million. And most of these, I mean, they pay taxes. Right. So they are contributing to the local economy. They also often frequent each other's businesses, mm-hmm. and they frequent local restaurants. So... They're a part of the social and economic fabric of New York. Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of leads to the big question, which is why are there so few permits available or why are there 4,000 permits available when there's a very large demand for these permits and when vendors are contributing so much to the local and broader economy? I mean, as with many stories, there's sort of multiple sides and multiple interests Mm -hmm. at play. And a number of the sort of local business and especially property development interests are not widely in favor of increasing the number of vendors. They're sometimes viewed as a nuisance. I heard, I didn't really see evidence of this being the case, but I heard concerns that vendors might leave trash. They could blow smoke in the faces of people at a sidewalk cafe from their cooking fumes. And they're seen, perhaps with some justification, as competition for brick-and-mortar restaurants Mm -hmm. and grocery stores. As we all know, running a business is really hard in New York right now. Uh, The minimum wage has gone up every year since 2013, and rents never go down. So restaurants have fairly small profit margins and they worry about a vendor parking down the street who doesn't have that massive overhead cost trying to sell similar products for less money. Yeah. In your research, did you find that that concern is valid, that, you know, vendors are actually taking away from brick and mortar restaurants or cafes? It was a concern that I heard raised multiple times by people who are currently opposing legislation that would increase the number of permits, but I didn't find a lot of research to back up that this is actually the case. Typically, there was a 2018 report, which was small but fairly compelling, and it basically states that in most cases, vendors tend to avoid selling outside businesses selling comparable products because they get harassed, they get chased away. It's also competition for the vendors. And there's a different appeal to a food truck versus a sit-down restaurant. So there's not a lot of evidence that food trucks are driving restaurants out of business, but it's a concern that many people have. Yeah. So now... Councilmember Margaret Chin has actually proposed a bill that would eventually increase the number of permits available and do sort of a variety of things to support street vendors. Can you talk about who Margaret Chin is and also what her proposal consists of? Margaret Chin has been in public service for roughly 30 years. She actually is an immigrant herself. 
Her family moved from Hong Kong when she was a child in 1963 and settled in Chinatown in New York. And she's been a proponent of street vendors' rights before. This is something that she tried to move on in 2016, which was killed in 2017. And she's been very public about saying that these are some of the hardest working citizens in New York Mm -hmm. and that they ought to have a path to economic stability in the middle class. So what does the proposal consist of? I know part of it was creating an advisory council. Is that correct? Yeah. And that's I think it's important to remember that part because a lot of the criticism around this legislation is that it doesn't do enough to enforce the existing rules, which currently are kind of all over the place. But before this legislation would start increasing permits, it would create a street vendor advisory board, and that would include local business owners, business interests, representatives from different parts of the city, including street vendors. And the idea is that that would start you know, making sure that the rules are actually followed. And then after that, it would increase the number of permits by 400 a year for the next decade. So who is supporting this bill and who is opposing it? So obviously the street vendors are very much in favor of it. I was dealing with the Street Vendor Project, which is an arm of Urban Justice Center. They are a local nonprofit in New York, which is dedicated to helping marginalized communities. So they have one arm that advocates for sex workers. They have different groups that they address, and they are very much standing behind this bill. Essentially, the people opposed to it are representing the hospitality industry, small businesses in New York, and also property development groups. Gotcha. And this legislation is coming at a time when other cities, in addition to New York, are kind of also in the midst of these conversations about how do we regulate versus how do we support our street vendors. What are some examples in other cities of these conversations? What 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 do they look like? I mean, I think there is a general agreement right now in different cities that street vending does need to be regulated. There needs to be a system around it. Los Angeles very recently actually officially legalized street vending, and it has no cap on the number of permits. It is regulated and monitored, but it's not like, oh, there will only be Mm 4,000 new permits issued ever. That's interesting. As I was reading this, I was curious, sort of, what got you interested in this topic? And, you know, how did you think to write this piece and start researching Uh, the state of street vendors in New York? Sort of in a roundabout way, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I used to live in Bangkok for a number of years. And before that, I was based in China. And both of those were places that, when I lived there, had very vibrant street food vending cultures. You had vendors, I mean, especially in Southeast Asia, you have stands that are beloved and have been in the same family for four generations. You have street food winning Michelin stars. And unfortunately, also during the period I was in Asia, a lot of governments started to crack down on that. So for instance, when I I was in a city called Wuhan, China, which has changed 
drastically since I was there. They built a subway line through my neighborhood and all of those street vendors are gone. And if you go to cities like Shanghai or Beijing, street food vending is sort of a pale shadow of what it used to be. Same in Vietnam. And when I was in Thailand under the current military government, they just started clearing whole streets that had been there for decades and decades. And all of a sudden, it was it was this very big shift in the city because it's it was and still is the livelihood of so many people. It's also an affordable, high-quality source of food for much of the working class in that city who isn't going to go to one of the fancy Western brunch restaurants selling New York-priced avocado toast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really... It's not that it's gone, but it has changed. And I saw sort of what an impact that had on both the culture and the climate and just how many people were hurt by that. So New York is obviously a very different case study, but a place like Jackson Heights, street food vending is very much part of the community and the local culture. And it's sort of it's not a one-sided issue. I realize there's multiple things at play, but a lot would be lost. A lot of the vendors that I saw clearly knew the people around them. They had friends stopping by within their communities. They supported each other for the most part. And you have this sort of very vibrant subculture and economy that I think it could be lost or threatened if something isn't done to protect it. Yeah. So after all of your research and talking to all these different kind of factions, what do you think that we'll see happen with council member Margaret Chin's proposal? You know, I I asked everyone that I talked to about that and it is too soon to say this is very new and again, it's coming up against some pretty powerful forces within New York politics. So it is possible that this will gain momentum. And I think there is a a universal consensus that something needs to be done about the current situation. I didn't speak to a single person who said, oh, this booming illegal underground market is great. (laughs) Like, it's a mess. The fact that there are an estimated 20,000 vendors paying crazy rates, sometimes not in the places that they're supposed to be, isn't really good for either vendors or small businesses. Whether they're going to be able to come to an agreement that makes sense for everybody this time around, I hope so, but I don't know yet. Yeah. Okay, so my last question is, accompanying your article are these gorgeous photographs of all of the different food and vendors that you stopped by. Um, and Thank you. <laughs> they look delicious. So what was your favorite food that you got to eat while reporting this piece? Oh, I ate so much. <laughs> I mean, really, I don't think you can go especially to that part of Queens and not just stuff your face. Uh, and I think the the one Ecuadorian mother and daughter that I interviewed, they were making just like really fabulous slow food, like this pork that cooks for hours and hours. Mm. It has like a crusty skin, like an Italian porchetta almost. Mm. 
I had a lot of momos. I also visited a former street food vendor, which is Arepa Lady. Yeah. So she started with a truck in the area, became quite famous, eventually shut down and reopened just last year with a brick and mortar restaurant, which is doing very well. Yeah. So it's so good. It's so good. Oh. Um, and I mean, that's the that's the dream of a lot of these people right. is they think, you know, if I make good food and provide a good service, maybe someday I'll have a bigger business. And that clearly has been successful in her case. Right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. You can read Diana's full story at munchies.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to tune in again on Wednesday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.